Good morning. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here at Pathfinder Church. And uh, for the rest of the summer, we're going to be talking about the households that make up this congregation. We've got a variety of different households. We've got uh, your traditional nuclear families. Uh, we've got uh, roommates uh, who are living together. We've got empty nesters. We've got the dinks, you know, dual income, no kids. Uh, we've got multi-generational families. Uh, and we've even got uh, single people who have learned that they have to seek households and close relationships from outside the boundaries of their own four walls uh, to find deep and meaningful relationships to surround themselves with. Uh, and in fact, it's, as we look at those households, we're going to be having different MCs than you're used to seeing up here for the next five weeks. That's why we had Tim and Tara uh, up here, because uh, they brought that sibling dynamic uh, that uh, household is not just necessarily this, this nuclear family, but it's even grown siblings uh, who are still sharing life together. And what we're going to be talking about is that uh, a Christian group, uh, Barna, just did a big study on households and what makes them spiritually vibrant, healthy, joyful, uh, life-giving. And there are some factors that make the difference between households that are stuck in ruts, that uh, aren't living li uh, lives of fulfillment uh, and peace. Uh, and there are some things, though, that, uh, that if you do these things, they correlate to households that are filled with joy and growth and spiritual vibrancy uh, and health. And so each week we're going to talk about another one of these things. And we're going to start this week with the first factor for a household that, uh, that lives a deeper, better, healthier, more joyful life than another household. And it's this, that th such households are marked by deeper conversations. And so we're going to look at what that means and wrestle with, uh, with what we need to do differently to become households uh, that have deeper conversations. Uh, and for that, we're going to start with Psalm 1. Uh, and before I read it to you, I just want to set the, this, uh, the tone of this. We often pull out chunks of verses for you guys to help explain them. Uh, we don't as often just read the Bible and let you listen to it. And so I want to just read all of Psalm 1 to you without any commentary from me. And I encourage you to just sit, listen, soak it up. There are going to be some words and concepts that uh, maybe are unfamiliar or foreign to you. That's okay. Just, just let God's word speak to your ears and to your hearts, okay? So here we go. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment day, nor sinners sit in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. There you go. You just made it through a whole psalm. Wasn't even that painful. Uh, but as we dive into it, look a little more deeply, there's probably some concepts that did stick out, some words that were a little, little weird uh, and foreign. And, and one of them is this language of righteous and wicked that sounds very harsh, very judgmental. Uh, doesn't feel very loving to call people names. Uh, and so let me just clarify that up front, that what this psalm is saying is at the end of the day, there are two ways that we, any of us, can choose to live. We can live according to this way of the righteous, 
or we can live according to this way of the wicked. It's not saying that any given person is, is better than another or some people are evil. It's just saying that all of us are faced with a choice. As we go through life, we can go through life like the wicked person or we can go through life like a righteous person. And so what does that mean for us? How do we need to live differently? What choices should we be making to make sure that we're in one camp or the other? All right, so now let's go back to the psalm a little bit more piece by piece and, and let's look at the two categories of ways that you can, be. you can be. You can be righteous or you can be in the way of the wicked. Now the way of the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now I am not a farmer, but I read a chapter about this verse. And so what I gather is that uh, when, you, when you harvest grain of any sort, there's, there's the actual grain part that's good for food, and then there's this outer um, coating that's called the chaff, and it's useless, it's worthless. Uh, the closest I have ever come to chaff, and maybe you as well, is have you ever shelled a peanut? Uh, and you know there's that red, thinnish, uh, thin papery kind of substance that, that when, you, when you open the shell that's kind of on the outside of the kernel, that papery, thin thing, that's the chaff of the peanut. And you can't do anything with it. It won't dissolve, so you can't, you can't boil it or cook it. Uh, if you try to make bread uh, from grain and you leave the chaff in, it's just kind of like getting your teeth because you can't do anything with the chaff. It's worthless. Luckily, it's also relatively weightless. And so what you did if you were a farmer was you, you'd take all of your grain that, was, that had all this chaff wrapped around it, and you just kind of throw it up high in the air and let the wind blow the chaff away, leaving the grain that was heavier right there where you were threshing it, and then you had the stuff you needed to make bread or whatever you wanted to do with the grain. So this is the chaff, and the psalmist is saying, the way of the wicked is like the chaff, weightless, worthless, blown away by the wind, has no permanency or solidity, uh, there's no way to, to, uh, to be rooted or solid in life. Jeremiah, one of God's prophets, uh, he describes the way of the wicked similarly, but with a, little more, with a little more explanation. He says this, this is what the Lord says, cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength, who, and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future, and they will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land, Jeremiah. So this picture, you see the connection now. What does it mean to, to be chaff? Uh, to, it's like being a, a barren shrub or a shriveled shrub in a barren land. You don't have roots. And so what happens is you try to put your trust and hope in the strength of humans. You try to think about the things of man. And as a result, you have no stability. Any wind that blows, you just get taken right away. Any hardship or struggle that comes across your path, you get knocked down. Uh, it's the tumbling tumbleweeds. Uh, these people, they, they are swayed by every new headline that hits the news, every new outrage. Uh, oh, now I'm even more scared than I've ever been about the future of this country. Like, these are those people because they're so obsessed and spend their time and their thoughts on the things of man that they are blown like chaff and they cannot stand up to even the slightest wind. Okay, that's, that's the way of the wicked. That's the chaff. Now, there's a second way that any of us can choose to walk in instead. And that's this way of the righteous that the psalm calls out. It says, now the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. 
Isn't this a better way to be? Wouldn't you want to be more like a tree? You have roots, you're unshakable, you're mighty oak. Uh, and this is the way of the righteous as compared to that. Uh, and again, Jeremiah helps us because he explains a little more about, all right, what does this whole tree metaphor mean? What, what do we need to do to live more like this tree? So he says this, Jeremiah says, but blessed are those who trust in the Lord. They have made the Lord their hope and confidence, not human strength. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. The Psalm's saying there's two ways to live. There's the way of the wicked, that's chaff. There's the way of the righteous, that's like a mighty tree. Which one do you want to be? And the answer is supposed to be easy. You want to be the tree. I want to be the tree. You want to be the tree. We all want to be the tree, right? Okay. We don't want to be uh, torn and scattered and, and moved everything that life throws at us. We want to be strong, unshakable, solid. All right, so how do we do that? It talks about not trusting in the things of, of human strength. You know, it's focusing, putting your trust in God. Uh, the Psalms really does unpack what we need to do in order to be the tree. See, the choosing between tree and chaff, that's the easy question. The harder question is, how do we become more like the tree? All right, so the first thing it says, it starts out. It's saying, all right, the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. The, the first piece of becoming a tree is evaluating who you're spending your time with. Who do you stand, sit, and walk with? And the answer for most of us is your household, your roommates, your kids, your parents, your spouses, these are the people that we stand, walk, and sit with. This is who we surround ourselves with. All right, so, so for a lot of us, this answer is almost more of a given. Like you can choose your friends, you can, to some extent you can choose your coworkers, um, but we've all got a household that's been somewhat out of our control. That, that this is who we are with now, and, these is, and so this is what we gotta look at with Psalm one. All right, these are the people we're with, is our household. Second question, what do you do with the people that you are with? All right, what are, the, what are the activities that you engage in with your household? Well, it tells you what you should do. All right, so what you need to do is, if you want to be a righteous person surrounded by your household, you want to delight in the law of the Lord, and you want to meditate on that law day and night. All right, there's the picture. You want to delight in the law of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, at first glance, this sounds a little silly. Who delights in the law of the Lord? Right? I picture this conversation. You know, someone saying, well, what's your favorite commandment? Oh, I don't know. I kind of like the ninth one. What's your favorite commandment? No one does this. Uh, just, to, just to explain a little bit, this law of the Lord, it's just a metonymy. It's a summary that says all the word and truth of God. Okay, not just the laws, not just the commandments. It says law. But law just means all the things that God has laid out for us, his people. We need to delight in the word of God. We need to meditate on God's word, the fullness of his teaching, day and night. So, you want to be a tree? You don't want to be chaff blown every which way by circumstance and the struggles of life? You want to be a tree rooted and mighty and unshakable? Start reading the Bible more, you goobers. <laughs> of course, it's not that simple. 
right? If, if that was really the message here, and it's a pretty obvious one to take away from Psalm 1, right? You got to delight in the law. You got to meditate on it day and night. And so we'd walk away and I could say, all right, go read the Bible more. And you'd walk out the door and most of you would fail. And it wouldn't even be your fault, honestly. Because here's the thing about the Bible. It was not designed to be read in isolation. This is really important, so I'm going to say it again. The Bible was never intended to be read in isolation. And yet we get to a verse like this. We look at Psalm 1 and we think, oh, I, I just got to read my Bible more. And so we, we, we buckle down and we try really hard and we strive. Like, okay, I'm going to try. And, and then, we, then we just we struggle. If we fall short, it, it's boring. I don't understand it. It's confusing. And then we fall off. And then we beat ourselves up. We feel bad when the fact is we were doing something that was never intended to be done in the first place. This is the equivalent of the high school literature teacher saying, guys, Shakespeare's amazing, and so here's Romeo and Juliet, and y'all need to read Romeo and Juliet for homework. And then I'm going to make you come to class and make you really understand that I'm going to make some poor 13-year-old boy stand up and read this romantic monologue by Romeo in front of all these girls that he may or may not have crushes on. Uh, and, and this poor guy's got to pronounce all these words with these and thous and this and, 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 and we're just going to humiliate him. And then the teachers are surprised when kids don't appreciate the genius of Shakespeare. It wasn't what Shakespeare was meant to be done. It was meant to be a play. Where you're meant to see it acted out and felt, and you're meant to watch a movie like with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, and suddenly you see the adventure and the excitement and the romance and the, and the heartbreak. It'd be like reading the script of Hamilton, the musical. And you could read it, and you would probably learn a little bit about the history of our country versus getting a group of friends together and, and heading down to the Fox and seeing this production with the dancing and the singing and the characterization and suddenly feeling like, oh my gosh, I finally understand a chunk of our history in a way I never did before. The Bible was designed to be read in community amongst your household. For a long time, I can say that with confidence because for a long time, it wasn't even written down. If someone said to you, you need to delight in the law of the Lord, meditate on it day and night, it wasn't like you could go read it somewhere. It, it was oral. They, they, they recited it over and over again. The way you heard the Bible was you'd sit around the campfire with your family and grandpa would be there and everyone would say, grandpa, tell us again about that time that God rescued our people from Egypt. And then he would recite to them Exodus and the story. And they would experience it in a shared way. They would delight in these moments together. And then whoever was telling the story, whoever was, was revealing God's word would also share. And then this is the hope we have today. This is what God does for us now. He saved our ancestors once upon a time. He, he's, he's fighting for us now. He's guiding us towards a future and a hope. He's got good things waiting for us. And they experienced it together. And it was a joy and a delight. I got to experience something kind of similar uh, with my kids. Uh, two, my two oldest are now able to read, which has been great for distraction purposes uh, in our family. Uh, and they discovered recently that I actually own uh, some vintage comic strip book uh, collections uh, from way back in the day, like Beetle Bailey, uh, Wizard of Id, BC, Andy Cap. Uh, the Andy Cap's a little confusing to them. My daughter said, Dad, all the jokes are about him being drunk and his wife beating him up. I say, honey, that's your grandparents' sense of humor. Right? <laughs> Not much I can do about that. Take it up with Nona. Um, 
But what's been great is they'll be on the couch next to me and they'll be reading Wizard of It and they will be laughing and cracking up at these old, old comics, these 80 year old comics. And they'll be laughing at them and they'll, and they'll be looking at me and saying, dad, isn't this hilarious? Look what happened here, he fell off his horse, it's so funny. And we're delighting in it together. It's much easier to delight in something when you're, when you're enjoying it mutually, when it's something that you and your kids and, and whoever's in your household that you're sharing in. This is the picture of the law of the Lord that we're supposed to delight in. Not some dry reading by ourselves with a cup of coffee, not, not some memorizing of the commandments, but, but truly engaging in the story of God and his love for you and for all of his people. So why don't we do it? Well, I know for my family, at least, it's because we are just so overwhelmed with just the realities of life that most of our conversations are not on the deeper level, the things of God. They're on the shallower things. They're the things of, of human beings because we've got to figure out schedules. Uh, the kids are all going to play soccer this fall somehow, which means that's three rounds of practices and games that we have to coordinate each and every week. Or we have to talk about bills and figuring out what we're going to do with the next thing. And, and then it's the latest you know, news headlines or how work went. Uh, and I've got to share about my day. She's got to share about hers. And, uh, and, then we t- you know, we, and then we talk about you know, current events. And you know, did you guys know that Taylor Swift and Katy Perry have patched up their feud? Like, I'm, I'm really proud of them. I mean, and I'm bummed because then Taylor Swift, her old manager, like he stabbed her in the back and he sold all of her music to like this, the guy that bullied her online. And, and I'm just hoping she gets through this and she makes more music and she has control over it. And, and then sometimes Melanie gets to pick the topic that we talk about. <laughs> but we've gotten glimpses of what happens when you talk about the deeper things in your family. Just a couple of weeks ago, my kids were all blessed to be in our vacation Bible school at this church, and they do this really cool thing at VBS. They every day ask kids and volunteers and grown-ups, uh, they ask them all to be looking for God sightings. And all throughout the day, you can share those God sightings, and the kids turn them in, and, and then they celebrate them together, and they read them up front, and, and, and everyone's just looking for God sightings. And ever since VBS ended, my kids, we, we sit down for dinner, and they, and they say to me, Mom, Dad, can, can, we t- can we do God sightings at dinner tonight? And they're so excited, and we say, well, of course we can do God sightings. And, and we end up having some of the, the most pleasurable, delightful, joyful conversations we've ever had with them. But, but we never would have initiated that. It wasn't something we... We did it. It took a vacation Bible school. It took our kids being the leaders in our family to do God sightings. Or for me, I, I tend to be overwhelmed uh, with the negative of things. And, and my wife will ask me about how my day is. And, and I'll tell her, and I'll say, well, you know, this went wrong and this went wrong. And I tried to do this and that didn't go so well. And I'm, and I'm juggling this. And, and, and I'll just, you know, kind of like unload on her for like 10 minutes. And she'll finally like kind of staunch the tide and say, did anything good happen today? And the answer is, of course, something good happened today. In fact, lots of good things happen each and every day. God blesses me throughout my day. I'm privileged to get to be in a job where I see the hand of God in people's lives all day long. But it took my wife to get me out of my own, just focus on myself, focus on the struggles, and back on what good things was God doing in your day? See, we all struggle, and it doesn't matter what your household looks like. There's going to be something that that is, is systemic in your house that's gonna make it easier to stay shallow, to stay on the things of man. Maybe your roommates, uh, and uh, this Barna study showed that roommates struggle very much with having spiritual conversations uh, because by and large, they live lives of adjacency 
which is that you like each other. There's a reason you're roommates. But you've got your separate lives, separate jobs, separate things, you know, and, and you just kind of, you know, check in, see each other once in a while, and there's no actual intentionality saying, no, no, we actually want to be cheerleaders for each other. We want to be supporting each other, rooting each other on in our lives. You know, or maybe uh, you're empty nesters, and, and what's happened is the rhythms and the routines of your household were built back when you had kids. And now that the kids are gone, you, you've never had the opportunity to reevaluate those and to think, all right, what do the rhythms need to be now? What do we want to do differently now that we're not consumed with the lives of our children? You know, or, or maybe uh, you know, you're dinks, you're the dual income, no kids, and, uh, and so you, um, you kind of skipped to the, to the good part of life uh, early. Uh, they're little, they're so little, and we're so tired. And one of the things that, that you miss out on, one of the amazing things about having kids is they are natural fountains of curiosity. And if you let them, kids will actually initiate and drive some of the best, deepest conversations because the whole world is amazing and they're curious about all of it and they just ask question after question after question. And if you don't have kids in your household, then that's fine, but then it means that you have to be the initiator. You have to have eyes of wonder that look out at the world. You've got to drive that curious conversation and it doesn't come naturally to adults because we tend to be beaten down by just the rigors of life. And so whatever it is, there are things that are keeping us from having these deeper conversations in our household, and it's killing the faith. It's killing it. Barna and several other groups have done studies that they, 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 there's no doubt about this at all, that the number one factor driving the loss of faith in people 35 and, and younger, the reason we're losing the next generation of believers is because they've never had a spiritual conversation within their household. Because they, they might have gone to church, they got dragged to church every week, but no one ever actually talked to them about faith in a meaningful way. And in fact, it even went the other way, that if they tried to initiate that conversation themselves, they got shut down, they got judged, they got scorned. This is the kid in Sunday school going, I don't really believe that a guy could survive in a whale for three days. And the teacher, the well-intended volunteer goes, well, don't be so disobedient and disrespectful. Just believe the Bible because God says it. And their, their actual initiation of a deeper conversation was shut down. And they never had anyone actually talk to them about it. At my last church, knowing this research, for our confirmation program, we instituted spiritual questions that kids needed to ask their parents. And we worked really hard to make them easy. The questions were things like, how did you end up at this church? That's it. Why'd you pick this church? Or maybe, where was a time that God really was powerful in your life? There's no right or wrong answer to either of those questions. And yet the parents struggled, and it was hard. You couldn't do it. And so as a result, we've had an entire generation that grew up never seeing the deeper things discussed within their households which is so tragic because this is exactly the opposite of what Psalm 1 is describing. It's describing a household, people sitting in the company where they delight in the law of the Lord. They talk about the good things of God over and over and over again with each other. And we have lost that as a generation. We just don't do it anymore for all the reasons that I've listed and more. And so let's really face squarely now. Let's talk about what is it that keeps us from going deep in our households, whether that's with your roommate, with your kids, with your parents. Why don't we have these deeper conversations to help us delight in the goodness of God and the deepness of his story? Here, here are some of the reasons why we keep it shallow. First of all, none of us wants to feel dumb. 
right? I think all of us have this fear in our head that if we actually initiated a conversation, if we talked about the things of God, that moment would come where the kid would say, I don't believe God could live in a whale for three days. And you go, I don't know the right answer. I don't know how to answer that question. And maybe, in fact, I'm not even sure I believe it myself. I struggle with that, but I don't want to admit that to them. It would ruin their faith. We're so worried about being wrong, giving the wrong answer, that it's actually safer to just not have the conversation at all. And as a result, these deeper things, these things that would root our households, we just don't even want to initiate them because we don't want to look dumb. Or maybe for you, it's that you don't want to be judged. Right? If you keep things shallow, then there's no vulnerability, then there's no opening up uh, any pathways to, to judgment or criticism. I experienced this personally. I, growing up with my dad, I had a great dad. He loved me. He took care of our family. We never had deep conversations, never once. And I know exactly why that is. And I'll give you one example why that is. We were just sitting around the dinner table. We were, we were lighthearted. We were joking. We were talking about just light things of our day. And I decided to share this story. I said, oh, well, you know, speaking of, I've got this goofball friend in high school, and I just got my driver's license. And, and I said, oh, I, you know, I was driving home from school the other day, and he was in the car, and, and he threw a French fry at me you know, while I was driving because he's just so silly. And my dad immediately went, wait, what? He was roughhousing in the car? Did you take your eyes off the road? Were you paying attention to what you were doing? Because if you were speeding and you get a ticket, we can't afford the car insurance if you get a ticket. You won't be able to drive anymore. And I just... And I learned that day that every conversation with my dad was a booby trap. Because I never knew what would be the thing that might set him off or that might, might reveal a flaw in my character that I didn't even know was there? And it wasn't safe. And I hear from so many parents who say, oh, I'm trying to have spiritual conversations with my kids, and they're not interested. I ask, you know, we, we try and do a family devo, and they never share. Or I ask them, how is your day? And they say, fine. And, and the, the, the conclusion that these parents make is that they just don't want to do it. They don't want to have deep conversations with me. And what I would suggest to them is, actually they do, but you've proven to them somewhere else that deeper conversations are just another risk of being exposed and criticized and judged. And if you want to have spiritual conversations, you've got to actually start with the, with the shallow stuff. You've got to start up front not being critical, not judging, not making your kid feel like there's a booby trap behind every corner. This keeps us from these deeper conversations. Or, or maybe, and this is, uh, this is kind of a, t- a corollary to this, none of us wants to be excluded. None of us. We want to be loved and valued and, and, and included in our households, in our broader community. This is one of our deepest desires for connection. We talked about this last week. We were built and designed for connection and love and community. And there's the worry that if you talk about the stuff that matters, if you talk about the deep things, the hopes, the dreams, the struggles, the failures, you're going to say something that's going to actually keep you out of the loop. you got a political opinion that doesn't fit in with other people's, and you know it doesn't, and so you just stay quiet. Because if you dared share it, you might get kicked out. I'll tell you, I'll just own it. This is a struggle for me and my family. My wife and I, we don't, we don't have a lot of Bible conversations. And it's my fault. It's because when we do have them, and if she ever uh, shares an opinion or interpretation of a passage that's different from mine, 
or that feels like it's a little bit outside of the realm of orthodoxy or something. And then like it immediately triggers in me like pastor mode and I'm like, you can't think something wrong about the Bible. And maybe it's not even wrong, it's just different or it's a way I hadn't thought of it before. But, but what happens in those moments is I know this, I get cold and distant. And she's learned that if she wants to have a husband who's, who's fond of her and, and who's warm towards her, it's better just to stay away from the deeper stuff. Let's just keep it light. Let's talk about Taylor Swift and then we can still love each other because we're in agreement on Taylor Swift. Right, these, these are the things. And, and yet this is why our households are struggling. This is why we lack joy and vibrancy and health and energy. It's because we keep it shallow. We don't risk to even try for those deeper conversations that the Bible says would actually root us like trees that would make us unshakable and able to face the world in more competent ways. Now, you can't magically wave a wand and change the culture of your household. You certainly can't control and change another person in your family, your roommate, your parent, your sibling. But what you can do is you can change your approach to conversation and and faith and household. You can change your approach. In fact, you can reverse each and every one of these things is in your power to undo right now, starting today. Right, see, if you wanna go deeper, here's what you can make a choice right now to do. You can decide, instead of being worried about being right, I'm just gonna be authentic. I'm just gonna decide right now, I'm gonna be real. You tell me you're struggling with something, I'm struggling too. You ask me a question, I don't know the answer, I'll just admit it. I don't know, I doubt. And if, and if you are less focused about always having to be right, always having to know the right thing to say, then you can just be authentic. And, and believe me, the people in your life will love you all the more for it. Your kids, if you're actually willing to say to your kids, you know what, I messed that up, I'm sorry. That apology is gonna be worth its weight in gold in helping them know that they can trust you, that you don't have to pretend like you're right all the time. That you can admit that you're wrong. It's huge. Or from there, you can go, you can go this far. Instead of the, worried about this judgment, instead of being a critic of other people's, you can just decide up front that you're a safe place. That anything they share with you about the deep things of life, the hopes, the dreams, that you can just receive that without any criticism. I tell you, I, I worry, you know, like I worry about my daughter saying, dad, I've decided I just want to grow up and be a musician. And I'm like, they make no money. There's no job security. It's just a constant striving, right? And immediately I could respond to that with, with criticism and all these things, or I could just say, what a dream you have. What, what a cool passion that God has laid on your heart. And I'll trust her, she's a smart kid. Like she's gonna grow up, she's gonna figure life out. Uh, and you know, maybe she'll be living with me till she's 30, but there's worse things in the world. <laughs> but to just decide right up front, I'm just gonna be a safe place and that nothing you say, I'm gonna bring judgment or criticism or even advice to it. I'm just going to be safe. And, and then again, the, the correlation to that is that because you're going to decide up front that, that there's nothing they can do to be kicked out of your household, your family. This is the third point. Instead of choosing the idea, you're going to choose the person. You're going to say, you're more important to me than any, than any disagreement that we've got, any ideas where we, we have differences of opinion. I'm going to choose you. And if we made these three small changes, they're, small, they're hard, but they're simple but they're hard. If we did this, suddenly we would be creating an environment that would actually uh, naturally grow into the deeper, more powerful conversations. 
And if it helps you to know this is a conversation that you've already been invited into. In fact, it's a conversation that's going on in your life and your heart daily. Do you know this? Uh, understand it this way. When Psalms says that you're a tree planted by the water, what work and effort does the tree have to do to get its nourishment? None. It just sits there and lets the water flow up through its roots. And when it comes to these deeper conversations, this isn't actually something that you have to strive to create from scratch or, or figure out something new. It's actually something that's already going on with you because the water in the metaphor is, is the energy, the life, the power of God that brings this tree nourishment and growth. And in the same way, this conversation is going on all around you right now because you have a God who wanted to be known deeply by you. He wanted to be authentic with you. He said, you don't know me. Let me reveal who I am. Let me tell you my name. Let, let, let me send you my son so that you can get a glimpse of my heart. You've got a God who's been authentic with you first. And then, and then he chose up front not to be a critic, but to be a safe place for you. A God who said, I know you mess up. I know you screw up, but it's okay because I know those deeply. And what's more important to me is that you are not judged or criticized, that I, in fact, will be the safe place of welcoming, that he, in fact, sends his son to die and create an environment where we live in the power of the resurrection, that none of the troubles of life can ultimately topple us because death itself has been conquered in your name. Because ultimately, God chose you. He chose you to be in his family. He chose you to be in a relationship with him, not just in this life, but for eternity. And if that's true, then nothing else can, can shake you. And in fact, this can be the thing that drives all of your thoughts, all of your heart, all the things that you spend your time meditating on. This becomes an easy thing to delight in. Right? It's hard to picture sitting in a room by yourself, reading a bunch of Bible passages and, and just being so joyful and delighted in it. There are some people who can do that. But by and large, this is what you're being called to delight in and meditate on. That the conversations in your house are driven first and foremost by the goodness of God in your life. And then when you're talking about your day, you say, yeah, there are some hard things, but thank God for the many blessings he's poured out. And when you're struggling with this new obstacle that's come up, uh, that's facing your family, your household, you go, you know what, this is hard, but we're going to figure it out because God has gotten us through things in the past and he's going to get us through this. It becomes a much more delightful way to live. And if you right now take the initiative in your household, whatever it might be, to start thinking about these things, the goodness of God in your life and how that informs everyone else, your household is going to take off. It's going to be healthier. It's going to be more vibrant. It's going to have more joy. And by the way, I know we got kids in here. Kids, you can do this too. This isn't something you have to wait on the parent to do it. Kids, you can be the initiators of this and you can ask your parents these questions and you can drive the deeper stuff. It worked for us. Our kids wanted to do God sightings and so we did. And we've seen more blessing and joy in those conversations than anything before it. This is my hope for all of the households that we have in this congregation, that we would have the rootedness, the unshakability that God promises us, that we would be safe places in our homes for these deeper conversations so that God could fill us with his joy, his truth, his power. Amen. I also want to help you to do it. We want to help you to do it. And so in, in the mood and spirit of summer, each of you on the way out, 
your household, we would love for you to take an Adventure Pass book. All right, we've got enough for, for every household to take one, and each week for the next five weeks, it's going to have adventure challenges. Something for you to commit to doing in your household. And again, kids, I call you out. Make your parents do this. All right, and each week there's going to be a challenge related to these, these factors that bring joy and health and vibrancy to households. So I'm just going to help you out and explain it. Week one is about deeper conversations. And every week there's going to be different levels of difficulty because you recognize that you guys are all over the spectrum. Some of you, you've been having deep conversations for a while. We want to help you take it to a new level that maybe you haven't experienced. Some of you, this is scary stuff. This is a little trepidatious. We want to make it easy. We want to make it just a nice uh, and easy for you to just dip your toes in the water and, and see what that looks like. And so I'll, I'll just actually tell you right now. So the easy level for this week is to do a high-low conversation with your household one time this week. If you haven't ever heard of that, that's where you just go around and you just ask, what was the high point of your day? What was the low point of your day? That's it. No judgment or criticizing, just a safe place to hear that. And you just go around and you share one good thing, one bad thing. Just what an easy place to start. Or maybe you've already done that. In fact, I know quite a few families in the congregation that do those kinds of things already. So maybe you're ready for the medium level difficulty. Uh, and maybe you're ready to use uh, what we call the magic questions. Uh, we've been using these in our Bible studies and discipleship for the last year or so. And it's just three simple questions, and they're written here in your book for you. But it's three questions that just say, ask someone what's new or exciting or inspiring in your life. Because there's no right or wrong answer to that question. No way to get it wrong. No way to mess it up. And then to follow it up with what's hard or challenging? What are you struggling with? And again, you're asking to see the heart of the other person, not to correct or to give advice or to judge. Just to know more intimately what's going on with them. And then that third question is just simply, and, and what are you trying to do different? What are you trying to apply in your life? What next steps are you trying to take? Uh, again, not for judgment, but simply to celebrate how this person in your household is trying to move forward in their life. And that's it. Those are the three questions. That's a conversation that you can have. And if you uh, commit to doing this, you, you can come back. You can write in here, describe how it went, or take a picture and post it in here. You come back and you show us that you did it. We'll give you a little stamp. And you get all five stamps this summer. We'll put you in a drawing. We're giving away uh, Cardinals tickets. We're giving away movie tickets. You know, things to do with your household. Uh, together, So there's, there's a prize waiting at the end if you commit to trying this challenge. Because we believe, we believe so deeply that we're willing uh, to pay money for prizes for it, that if you do this, if you try these five factors for a spiritually vibrant home, you will make memories like you've never made before. You know, it's not just about vacations and summer camps. It's about doing the things that actually make the memories and, and foster deeper connections amongst your house. Uh, if you do this, you're going to see fruit, just like that tree that's described in Psalm 1, uh, we think you're going to experience joy uh, and, um, and new renewed purpose for your family. So I commend this to you on your way out. Grab one for your household. Do the challenge with us. Take pictures. Make it a joy and a fun, uh, fun thing to do together. Uh, and I look forward to seeing the fruit that is born in this community of faith over the next five weeks. Let's pray together. Lord God, your word is truly worth delighting over because your word is what reminds us of this story of how much you love us and how much you're willing to do to give us all the good things in life. Lord, you want us to be rooted and unshakable. You want us to be able to stand up to the hardships and, and uh, the winds that blow in different directions in our life. So Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would be on each and every household that's here today. 
Lord, that you would flood those, um, those places and, and make them an environment that, that's filled with compassion and mercy and love and acceptance for everyone in it. Lord, guide these conversations that happen. Help people take the, whatever that next step is, maybe just a little baby step uh, towards even moving a little bit towards those deeper things that you know will give us life, will give us confidence and fortitude uh, no matter what gets thrown at us. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.